Hi, I'm Simone van Nivenhuizen, Project and Research Officer at the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI podcast. Most Australians would agree that a strong command of the Chinese language is increasingly important as our relationship with China expands. Yes, China is Australia's biggest trading partner, and I think most of our listeners would be aware of the economic and trade relationship. But I think it's also important to remember that there are many layers to the bilateral relationship, including cultural, historical, and people-to-people links. Yet statistics indicate the number of fluent non-native speakers of Chinese is very low. One 2016 estimate put the number at just 130 across Australia. There appear to be challenges in attracting students to begin and continue the study of Chinese. A 2016 ACRI research report by Professor Jane Orton showed that more than half of students who begin Chinese in primary school do not continue it in secondary school if they have a choice to opt out. And while enrolments in HSC Chinese subjects in New South Wales have increased, with over a thousand in 2017, according to the New South Wales Education Standards Authority, more than 800 of these were in courses designed for background speakers. At the tertiary level, the Australian government has introduced a number of measures aimed at boosting knowledge of China and the Asia Pacific, such as the New Colombo Plan, which offers language exchange and internship opportunities for Australian undergraduate students. So, why is there still a shortage of non-native speakers taking up the challenge of learning Chinese and achieving fluency? With me to discuss these issues is Tom Shug, director and co-founder of My Education Group, an online Chinese learning and education service. Tom is also director and co-founder of the consulting company China Smart. He is a fluent Mandarin speaker and has previously worked for the Australian Trade Commission in Beijing. Welcome to the program, Tom. Thank you very much, Simone. Pleasure to be here. I might kick things off by asking you to tell our listeners a bit more about My Chinese Teacher. Sure. So My Chinese Teacher, or the My Chinese Teacher program,、um, is a Chinese language program designed for schools, and it's currently being used by upwards of fifteen thousand students per week in Australia,、uh, and we're just branching out into the UK and the US as well. Now, the way it works is we connect our team of Beijing-based teachers. We broadcast them live into the classrooms in Australia、uh, at the same time every week, and students will have an interactive Chinese lesson. Well, fifteen thousand students.、Um, <laughs> obviously, the numbers that I cited earlier don't tell a full picture of the the number of students who are learning Chinese in Australia.、Uh, look, we're certainly doing our bit to increase the numbers of Chinese learners in Australia, and typically there's been issues around access to、uh, sustainable teaching resources and. Access to language teachers in general, in this case Chinese. So, with this online platform and by utilising technology, we're able to bring the option of Chinese to a, a much larger number of schools than was previously thought possible. So, what kind of feedback have you received from the students and teachers about the use of online technology? The feedback has been overwhelmingly positive, and the the reason is that. The students are actually conversing with a native speaker on the ground in Beijing, so they've got this incredible context as to why they're learning a language, and with that also comes an element of motivation and inspiration. And it might come in a simple gesture like our teachers moving their webcams out the window in Beijing, and all of a sudden students in metro and regional areas of Australia are seeing the density of the skyline in China. They're seeing the density of traffic. They might be seeing aspects of the pollution outside, and it really 
stimulates real-world discussions about why they're learning a language and what's even appealing about it and exciting about it. And what do the students say are some of the challenges with learning Chinese? The aspects of Chinese that they might find difficult would be uh, elements of learning character writing and also the fact that it is a tonal language. But in saying that, um, as someone such as myself who really started learning Chinese formally as an adult, I struggled so much harder with tones uh, than prep students or foundation students do when they start our program. You could probably relate to that as well, Simone, with your own pursuit of the language. Yeah, well, I think I was in a fortunate position um, that I started learning when I was quite young, so I certainly benefited from that immersion in the tonal aspect of the language. I think it helped me, you know, when I grew up and decided to pursue it further and more seriously at uni. So I, I definitely think that the younger the students can be exposed to that, the better. Absolutely. That's our philosophy as well. Mm -hmm. Um, do you think that learning Chinese poses a unique challenge to Australian students? You mentioned before that you're also expanding your business to the UK and the US. Um, have you observed similar challenges there? Uh, the challenges are very similar. The, the challenges typically stem from having access to language teachers, in this case Chinese language teachers. Um, and there's certainly a cost component which I think has been an element of a challenge. and. It's also been a challenge of finding a type of program that maintains the students' levels of enthusiasm and really takes them on that scoped and sequenced pathway of, of learning a language over numerous years. Well, it's encouraging to hear that um, Australia is not the only country that is experiencing some, some difficulties and challenges with learning Chinese. I think I had this perception that Australia, Australia really understood the need to learn Chinese because we're constantly reminded of that in the media, we're constantly reminded of that by um, our density of Chinese population and Chinese immigration and it's something that I feel is in the forefront of Australians' minds. And what I was most surprised about when we recently approached the US, and this only happened a few months ago, we approached a number of schools um, on the East Coast seeing if anyone wanted to basically experience a, an interactive Chinese lesson the way that we deliver. And the response was overwhelming, and it was overwhelming in, in terms of just the sheer volume of interest that we got, but it was also really surprising because the interest was coming out of areas that I wouldn't have traditionally expected to have an interest in learning Chinese. And uh, to give an example, there is a group of about 12 schools in the Bronx in New York that are all currently using our program and just absolutely loving the exchanges that they're having, but then really acknowledging the importance of their students becoming China capable. And uh, there are schools in Georgia, um, in the South, there are schools in Baltimore, there are schools in, schools in Philadelphia. And um, I hate to say it, but some of it might have something to do with uh, Donald Trump <laughs> having recently gone over on a visit there because I've heard from a number of principals that that really reinforced the message about the significance of learning Chinese. So. It's a, I was just surprised and certainly pleased in terms of what we're trying to achieve, but there is a growing global understanding of and recognition of the significance of China. And I think I felt like Australia might have been at the, at the forefront of that, but we're really seeing echoes in other markets that we associate with um, also recognising this importance, which is, which is brilliant. 
Well, it's good to hear that Trump might be having a positive impact I was as on US-China relations. I was as shocked as you were, Simone, when I heard it. Um, and I say it with reluctance, but it would be wonderful to think that there was a positive impact occurring there. And what about the UK? We've been in the UK for about 12 months now, and uh, we timed it beautifully um, in terms of Brexit. And uh, I'm being a little bit facetious there because basically everything just fell away in the UK and no one knew what educational policies were right. going to be coming but there there is discussions now with a lot of our stakeholders in the UK that with Brexit um, the UK and countries will certainly be looking more broadly beyond Europe as a source of uh, certainly trade um, and in terms of language priorities we're very likely to see a shift towards Asia. And that's something that we are starting to see happen as well as the UK sort of takes its blinkers off a little bit more and says, right, beyond the European Union, uh, what does the world look like? And granted, um, everyone's still trying to work it out, but there does seem to be uh, an increasing interest in really evolving strong relationships and connections with China. Do you think this is a trend that we'll see across the world? Um, in terms of the education systems um, globally having more of an emphasis on Asia and Asia literacy um, as opposed to the more traditional focuses on Europe. I mean, even in Australia here, probably German and French um, are more widely taught at the school level than Chinese. Yeah, I think it would have to be evolving that way. Um, there's, it's a well-known fact that obviously the Chinese economy continues to strengthen we talk about the emerging superpower and the significance, the geopolitical significance that China's going to have, you know, obviously right across the world. So, yes, uh, that trend is one that we're already starting to see in markets that we're aware of. And there's no doubt that I think that global trend would continue as the prominence of China continues to increase. Um, in your opinion, how important is in-country immersion to Chinese language ac acquisition? Now, you mentioned that the online platform connects teachers in Beijing or other parts of China with students in the classroom in Australia or in the UK or US. But how important do you think it is for the students to actually go to mainland China or Hong Kong or Taiwan in order to experience the language firsthand? Um, look, I can speak from personal experience that it is vitally important to have an in-country experience um, in any of those places. I certainly did it with a number of them myself. I think the in-country is not necessarily an ideal solution if it's used in isolation. I think an in-country experience coupled with uh, ongoing, sustainable, uh, interactive Chinese language um, program is obviously going to complement it. Um, a great deal. In isolation, doesn't have the potential to be as effective, but it's certainly very important for those reasons we mentioned before of really engaging with the local culture and providing motivation and enthusiasm around why the language is important. Um, in my intro, I mentioned the new Colombo plan, which obviously is more geared towards undergraduate students at the tertiary level. Um, what do you think the Australian government or other agencies can be doing to encourage more students to go and have these in-country experiences? I think support from the government has traditionally come through, um, obviously, scholarship opportunities um, and, and various endorsed opportunities such as that. 
there's also room um, within the government sector, but even more broadly, to just encourage individuals to go over to China, um, be, it, be it China or Taiwan or uh, Hong Kong, and to really just immerse themselves in the language. There are there are so many opportunities to go over there and to learn the language, and you can have so many adventures in China, and someone who's lived in China, such as yourself, would be able to relate to that as well. It is a place that, it's a fun place to get lost in, it's a fun place to try and work out, and uh, that in itself can be the greatest motivating factor to really harnessing the language, but then incorporating what you've learned uh, in your career as you develop. Well, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Many an adventure was had during <laughs> my time in China. Um, and I'm obviously familiar with, uh, you'd be familiar with the Hamer Scholarship Program that's run out of Victoria, or maybe not, but it's a like a six-month in-country immersion mm. type program. And I think that's an example of um, a really effective opportunity. It tends to be um, adult learners that um, have completed their tertiary degrees or are um, near to completing and they typically would apply on the basis that they wanted to involve China and Chinese within their, within their careers, which I think is a fantastic initiative. Um, there's a similar initiative in Victoria, which is sending Year 9 students over to China for five weeks at a time, which is a wonderful experience um, for the Year 9s that get to participate. And I couldn't discredit how amazing that experience would be, but when it's not coupled with on-the-ground support both before and after, um, it can be a really expensive exercise in exposing someone to a language and a culture, but without actually providing a framework by which they can continue to learn and to um, develop those skills. So what you're saying is a structure is needed um, in order to um, provide purpose for the trips overseas, but then also provide the resources for the students to continue learning the language when they get back. Yeah, it, it just can't be looked at in isolation. Um, despite the fact that it is a, the in-country experience is vital, it needs to be supported um, both before and after with something more long-term. And what kind of frameworks do you think could be implemented to provide this long-term support? Look, I think languages in general, um, they come into the forefront of the mind uh, in government circles and in media circles um, routinely. Um, but it tends to be quite a cyclical process and uh, sometimes even around an election type scenario. And languages are, are so important. And yes, we, we have this monolingual culture in Australia, which we need to eradicate. And China is so important. And we really need to focus on making Australia multilingual. But it's seldom paired with practical solutions. It's, I think we all love the theory of, yes, let's all become bilingual in Australia. And I think the reason that there hasn't been a practical solution that's really been put forward is because the opportunities of using technology to eradicate or support this problem um, haven't really been acknowledged or, or even explored. And I can only talk in a personal context about what we're doing, the fact that we can reach 15,000 students a week in far-flung regions of Australia like Port Hedland or metropolitan regions of, of Melbourne um, and all they're required to have to sustain uh, an engaging language program is an internet connection, I think that really marks a step change in what's actually achievable on a grand scale because we like to talk on a grand scale in Australia but there hasn't been a lot of push for the practical side of things to really support that grand vision. 
but I think with the use of technology, it's entirely possible. Well, some of the feedback I've received from school teachers when I've spoken to them um, about maybe the fact that they don't have a Chinese language program or they had one but then had to shut it down because of lack of interest or perhaps lack of qualified teachers. Um, I think what you're saying is a really good idea um, to make the use of technology since it's so ubiquitous now. It's, it doesn't really cost very much to run an internet connection. It's pretty much essential in a school um, today. So I think uh, thinking outside the box and thinking creatively about um, coming up with solutions to perhaps the lack of um, qualified uh, or experienced Chinese language teachers on the ground in you know, regional areas or even right here in Sydney. Um, Simone, I think that's exactly right. I think what is also unique about this new model of teaching that, that we're talking about at the moment, other than the fact um, that the teachers are actually being broadcast into the classroom from Beijing, in the way that our program works is the generalist classroom teachers are actually present within the sessions as well. So okay. that is your regular, in a, in a primary school context, it is your regular classroom teacher that is actually going along the journey with the students as well. Now, we admit that is a, a big departure from the traditional model of language teaching. What is actually happening is you're effectively upskilling the broader teaching workforce in becoming aware of China, um, and aware of Chinese language. And what's developed, and we're looking at six years of, of, uh, of history of our program here, we're actually getting tapped on the shoulder by groups of generalist classroom teachers saying, we love what we've learned about China. We want to go to China and learn more. So there's this inspiration to develop Chinese knowledge and, and awareness in a much more holistic sense. And mm. I think... That's why there doesn't have to be a perception of, oh, an online program needs to be inferior to a more conventional language program because there's a whole heap of upside that is only just starting to be recognised now as far as the much broader ability of a program similar to this that can increase the professional development of the, the broader workforce. And ultimately, we embed a language program far more meaningfully with with something like that that exposes all those teachers. One argument that I've seen come up a few times in the media um, by com some commentators is that due to the high rate of immigration of people from China and, uh, and Chinese-speaking countries to Australia, it makes more sense to rely on these native speakers um, for positions that require a high level of language skills. Uh, what do you make of that argument? Uh, look, I think the argument is really lazy and um, really redundant in the sense that if, if that is the way that people want to approach the world or if that's the resolution to the problem, you're denying any input, any meaningful input to actually occur on the Australian side in this case. Um, you're also denying Australians the opportunity to actually understand a foreign culture in a meaningful way and understand a language because separate to the what might be economic outcomes or commercial outcomes um, it is an incredibly meaningful thing to do in terms of just human development to learn another language and take the time to understand another culture in a meaningful way so I think we'd be doing ourselves a disservice if we felt like that was a, a, a quick fix to a very complex problem. Mm. Well I, I totally agree and I think that 
language learning goes so much deeper than you know just learning the vocabulary and the grammar and being able to have a conversation with someone in their native language um, it goes back to what I said earlier about having people to people links um, and just actually being able to be in a better position to understand the world outside Australia the little bubble in which we live absolutely absolutely and you know going back to a place like China uh, it is a really exciting place, and I said this before, but like you can go to China and learn the language and just you may never decide to have a career that requires you to speak fluent Chinese, but you will be a better person, a better global citizen, to use that, that word that creeps up in, um, in government circles quite often. You will be able to have a more rich and fulfilling life as a result of that experience. So. Uh, we should absolutely encourage people to, to do so um, in a great way. I've personally benefited from studying Chinese at a community school, so um, a sort of more non-traditional uh, means of learning Chinese outside of my regular school hours, as, as Chinese wasn't available um, to me back then. Last November, the University of Sydney announced a partnership with the New South Wales government to establish a research institute for community language education. Um, do you think encouragement of enrolments in alternative and non-curriculum programs might offer a solution to some of the issues around, around access? Look, it certainly provides more access than previously existed um, in the context of having an opportunity to learn a subject that as you say, wasn't available um, at your particular school. Um, I still, the aspect of that, that that makes me a little bit uncomfortable is that it's still on the periphery. So it's still, mm -hmm. it's still an alternative learning method of a subject that demands to be in our mainstream curriculum. So I think the argument should be probably more about incorporating Chinese within the mainstream of every school um, or languages for that matter, we're talking about Chinese more specifically today, but um, you cannot deny that an additional education experience that didn't exist is certainly a good thing. So the answer is yes, but more broadly, um, let's not pigeonhole Chinese or other language subjects in uh, such a frame and let's bring them back into the mainstream. I might go back to the issue of native speakers and non-native speakers of Chinese. Um, some feedback that non-native students in high schools and primary schools provide is that they might feel a bit discouraged by the fact that in many cases they're surrounded by people who might speak Chinese at home or maybe have one Chinese speaking parent at home. They might have had some kind of background in the language growing up. Um, and perhaps they feel like they can't meet the expectations of the, the coursework or um, perhaps that they can't compete with students who already have this head start. Mm. Do you think uh, that anything can be done to curb this confidence challenge? The confidence challenge is a, a very real thing. And um, you mentioned Dr Jane Orton before, and she's been particularly yeah. vocal in suggesting reforms that can be applied to to prevent this and so yes things can be done but it has to obviously occur at that that policy level and ensuring that students who are non-native speaking um, are not getting pitted against students like you mentioned who have what would be deemed an unfair advantage um, with native speaking family members or 
perhaps even having previously lived um, in China, Malaysia, or other Chinese-speaking countries. Um, I recall from my first year at Monash feeling uh, I was doing Chinese 101 <laughs> and I was feeling very disheartened when I discovered a couple of months into it where I was sort of grappling with uh, Ni Hao at the time and there were a couple of people in my chute who were just chatting back to their friends and family in Shanghai in fluent Chinese and I remember feeling uh, yeah a, a fair amount of anger and despondency and that in itself is not a good way to and then they're, they're not good emotions that are going to be conducive to you going it's really hard um, but I'm going to keep on trying because I, I want to get to that level and as a result we've seen these dwindling numbers so something absolutely needs to happen about it um, but it requires the cooperation of so many parties. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've had the experience of being in a lecture theatre um, in one of the earlier Chinese courses at university and it being completely full, maybe 200, 300 plus people. And then as the weeks went on or as the semesters went on, the numbers halved basically with it with every course. So I think it's definitely an issue that needs to have a bit more thought. Yeah, because uh, it's it can be an intimidating prospect enough uh, learning the language without having to feel as though you are uh, starting very far um, behind the, the line. Well, thanks, Tom, for joining us and providing your insights into Chinese language learning. It's a really important topic, and I hope our listeners will um, go and explore perhaps some more options um, to increase their China literacy. Thank you, Simone. It's been a pleasure. Our next episode will feature John Keane, Professor of Politics at the University of Sydney. He'll be joining ACRI director Bob Carr to discuss his new book, When Trees Fall, Monkeys Scatter. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud, or by visiting our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you'll also find out more about ACRI's research and events. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at ACRI underscore UTS, and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.